Hey everybody, welcome back. It's episode 25 of Jointly Venturing. Let's talk world citizenship. Quarter of the way to 100. Aiming for 1,000 episodes. So we're getting there slowly but surely. What does the number 68 meters mean to you? What is the most significant thing that could happen on planet Earth that involves the number 68 meters? Most people have never really thought about this, but... Let me tell you the answer to that question, and the question is, how many meters would the sea level rise if all of the ice on planet Earth were to melt? And that answer is 68 meters. We are unfortunately well on the way to living on a planet where that dire possibility is becoming increasingly likely. As shocking as that may seem, if Antarctica and the Arctic and Greenland and all the glaciers of the world were to melt, concomitant with rising temperatures across the world, which are, as we know, rising faster than anyone ever predicted, we will have humanitarian consequences which are almost too gargantuan to imagine with the vast majority of the human race living within a hundred kilometers of coastlines across the world so climate change is real global warming is real and the human impacts of climate change are also real no matter what country you're listening to this podcast in your country will be and is being affected by climate change No countries are immune, whether coastal countries or landlocked ones. We've already surpassed one degree Celsius increases in historical temperature trends globally. We're trying to keep it under 1.5. That's looking increasingly unlikely. With predictions going into the two, three, four, five degree temperature increase ranges, which will have truly catastrophic impacts upon people everywhere. Some places will be affected more than others, and in some cases, entire countries will cease to exist if current trends continue. Those are obviously the small island nations of the Pacific, the Caribbean, and elsewhere. But beyond those islands, island nations, hundreds of millions of people along the various coastlines of the world eventually will be forced to move from where they're living now to safer locations. Even in Australia where we're broadcasting from, uh, more than 300,000 coastal properties are under imminent threat of permanent tidal inundation, according to government reports from several years ago. So no no place is immune, and and no place is going to get off scot-free when it comes to climate change. So the question then becomes, for those engaged in discussions about world citizenship, what do we do? as world citizens, to try to tackle this problem. How do we address this growing crisis in a way that protects the rights of everybody affected? And and one way, of course, is to begin to use human rights laws, use the law generally, and ultimately use courts and tribunals and adjudicating bodies in the United Nations, human rights bodies, etc., to try to get some semblance of justice 
when it comes to this question of climate displacement and ultimately questions of asylum and finding solutions for people that are displaced, whether across borders or as is more likely to be the case in global terms within the borders of one's own country. So the world has started to scratch the surface when it comes to all of the legal and rights questions associated with these questions. And a range of courts and tribunals have issued judgments and decisions and views on these issues. And that's the theme of today's episode. Episode 25 focuses on the whole issue of courtrooms and climate change. And we're very fortunate to have with us today a major player in this field, um, a person who probably has written more words in legal opinions concerning the question of climate displacement than any other judge or tribunal member in the world today. And that person who we have with us today is Bruce Burson, who we're talking to in New Zealand, across the Tasman. And he's the manager of the Refugee and Protection Stream at the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal, speaking to us today in his personal capacity, um, but also as a person who has drafted quite a few significant decisions regarding the questions that we're talking about today. So, Bruce, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thanks, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's nice to be in such a uh, hallowed company. Well, it's great to have you on. And so let's just jump straight into the topic. So the whole question of using um, you know, judicial and quasi-judicial pathways to achieve justice for people that... Uh, have been displaced or feel that they have been displaced or are threatened with displacement. Um, why don't you just walk us through some of your main experiences in this regard, um, writing uh, decisions dealing with these issues. Perhaps start with the Taitioa case in uh, concerning the man from Kiribati and then maybe move on to Tuvalu and elsewhere. Sure. Um well, the backdrop to all of these cases, in, in I guess in legal terms, has been this sort of sense that whatever else was engaged by disasters and climate change, um, one area that wasn't engaged was protection law. Um, and throughout the 80s and 90s, there was a range of sort of quite offhand pronouncements in the courts, often dealing with something other than disasters or conflicts, uh, disasters or climate change, rather, and would say, well, you know, of course, you know, the Refugee Convention or the protection is, doesn't apply to people who are victims of natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I, as I personally came to be more involved in this um, area, 
it quickly dawned on me uh, personally that those statements were, in fact, overstatements and that there were, it seemed to me, any number of pathways or scenarios which could at least potentially engage um, protection mechanisms that existed domestically and internationally. And so this was something that I'd sat uh, in my head for a period of time um, thinking about. Um, there was a conference in Bonn a long time ago now where I first sort of put pen to paper about this and wrote something about pathways to recognition and just beginning to deconstruct the various ways in which that could potentially occur. And then it was some years later that there happened to be um, a series of cases brought uh, before the tribunal in which the issue of return to a climate-affected uh, a small island uh, state in the Pacific was front and centre of the claim. And I was fortunate enough to be able to look at those cases and begin to try and flesh out in judgment how I at least saw the lie of the land in relation to how protection mechanisms um, could in fact be relevant in the context of displacement uh, with itself in the context of disasters and climate change. So that's something of the background to it. So the, fir um, the first case you, you know, worked on was in... 2013, is that right? Yes, yes, the, uh, uh, the uh, Kiribati case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, really was um, bought by a lawyer in New Zealand who I understand from him had been... Um, involved in Pacific Island affairs uh, for some time and um, really, um, I think, is a bit of an unsung hero in all of this. Um, and it speaks to something I think is an interesting part of the podcast, which is the need and the role of lawyers in this issue area. And really it was, um, I don't know how he met his client, uh, but he filed these claims. And quickly became apparent that this was an issue of real concern for him and indeed for his clients. And so he put the claim front and uh, centre before the authorities in New Zealand uh, with the aim, I think, of forcing us to think about this um, and what this means. And so that came before me. I'm just trying to think now. I think in 2013 sometime. Um, and I heard from him, I heard from an expert uh, who was in New Zealand at the time um, and got a sense of not only what the impacts on him were and how he thought they might be, but also what, the, what they were in the context of the uh, country as a whole and how climate uh, 
related issues and disaster-related issues were intersecting with issues of development and other matters uh, to um, impact on the um, well-being of this person uh, in Kiribati. So was that the first time that um, your tribunal received any cases about no, climate change issues? No, the, no, the tribunal itself has only been in existence since 2010. Mm-hmm. Before then, there was an institution called the Refugee Status Appeals Authority, which mm-hmm. only had a jurisdiction over the Refugee Convention. But I think uh, certainly in the early 2000s, there was an, another cohort of cases um, brought before the authority as it then was, or the authorities. I think some of them may have actually been removal cases. Um, but there they were dealt with, but dealt with um, in a very, what's the word I'm looking for? Not perfunctory, far from it, but in a very um, matter-of-fact way, uh, with an understanding about the relationship between disasters and and mobility, which was um, not very well developed. It just so happened that I had been inhabiting this sort of area of work uh, internationally for a number of years before these cases came before me. So I was already armed with knowledge and information that my colleagues just wouldn't have had before them. Mm -hmm. And so while there were cases, they were very much... um, um, they denied relief, but the way in which they denied relief was a very um, short analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I took it upon myself to think that, well, from a legal perspective, here was a, a, a golden opportunity to begin to modernize protection law and to uh, try and engender something of a paradigm shift in thinking from this protection law can't apply to protection law can apply um, paradigm and that was the, my main objective uh, in this you know not just deciding the case but what I would have liked to have done with these cases I guess that was my if I had one aim apart from answering the case that would have been the, the aim Scott right, so, right. Yes, these were the first ones that provided me with that opportunity in the Tuvalu case to begin to flesh out a more, a more modern um, understanding of, of protection law in this context. Right. And just for um, listeners, the, the, the first case was called the Taitioa case, and it essentially involved a man from Kiribati, uh, which is obviously a small island nation in the middle of the Pacific, uh, who was a long-term resident of New Zealand, um, whose visa had lapsed, and he basically didn't want to go back to Kiribati, so he made arguments to your tribunal, um, uh, aiming to stay in New Zealand and claiming that were he to return, he would have great difficulties in surviving there and uh, living a full life. And that, that was essentially the essence of the complaint that you had to consider, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, in simple terms, yeah, that does effectively it. You know, he was saying, if you send me back, um, these, are going to be the impacts upon me and that these impacts engage the protection mechanisms which which exist in, under New Zealand law, under our Immigration Act. Um, you know, so that was exact, exactly what was um, being asserted by him. He was requiring me to engage with the issue. 
um, right. requiring New Zealand law to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just was happy accident, I, I guess, in one level that I was, had this body of knowledge um, and understanding that I could bring to bear on it. But even without that, the simple act of filing that claim was forcing the system, the legal system, to deal with it. And of course, the happened. the human side of the whole case, uh, at the end of it, because of the nature of law and where it stands, even in comparatively progressive New Zealand, unfortunately for that individual man, did not enable him to stay in New Zealand for the long term. No, it didn't. And this man didn't have a humanitarian appeal. Uh, before me um, you know I don't know what my decision would have been if he had but the reality was that he had to shoehorn his circumstances through comparatively narrow legal apertures or pathways mm-hmm. um, that were set that I've got no ability really to go beyond but having said that I was, you know we try and take a principle but progressive approach at the tribunal generally and and so in terms of getting to an answer of the case it was an important mechanism for as I say trying to move the basic understanding of protection law in the space from can't apply to can apply may not apply in any particular case but can apply mm-hmm. and so what the mm-hmm. case does is answer his case, unfortunately for him and his family, in the negative. But for other audiences, if you like, um, to explain some of the ways in which protection law can change, begin to flesh out an architecture around which further claims can be fought. Absolutely. And frame arguments which future claimants will be able to look at, rely on, and develop. Right, right. Because I mean, of course, to me as a as a objective outside observer, um, reading through all the judgments, you know, one of the most important provisions that I have noticed is the one that, you know, in generic general terms, basically said, while it might not apply in this particular gentleman's case, the idea that one's right to life, for instance, could be infringed um, yeah. by returning somebody back to a country that was heavily threatened by climate change, you know, cannot at all be discounted as a possibility for a, an eventual successful no. claim. And no. that's a hugely significant uh, finding. Yes, I mean, and that's the, that was the paradigm shift, Scott. And I think one, one and perhaps the most significant outcome of this case um, has been that. That's been the paradigm shift that I was, I'm very pleased um, to have a part of engendering because what we have now in legal terms is a body of law stretching from a specialist tribunal, me, through to the domestic high court, court of appeal, Supreme Court, and finally in January of this year, all the way up to the Human Rights Committee, all saying the same thing. So there is right, this right. seamless body of principle which says 
protection law can apply in the context of disasters and climate change. Do you agree with the um, with the angle that important. some of those um, advocates were putting out there into the international media in January of this year when the Human Rights Committee came out with their decision that it's now illegal to refool or send someone back to a climate-threatened country if it threatens their right to life? Because that was kind of the, you know, the the positive spin they were trying to put on that those views issued by the Human Rights Committee. Well, there's an absolute prohibition on refoulement anyway, and there's nothing unique to climate and disaster cases. But it's one of those statements which sounds expensive, but sort of doesn't achieve nothing, but it doesn't take you very far because it begs the question of when is, what are the underlying circumstances in which the non-refoulement obligation is engaged in this context? And there, there are issues. So as a statement of headline principle, I mean, I, I have no problem with agreeing with the principle of non-reform, as you can well imagine, mm-hmm. and that's nothing unique to this issue area. But it begs the wider question of when that obligation becomes engaged. And there I think there are some hard questions uh, to look at, issues to address, and ones that I don't pretend to have neat answers for, any answers for, much less the only answers for, but they are there. There's a headline statement, of course. No one should be refooled uh, for climate-related issues, disaster-related issues, or any other any other um, issue uh, area. So just for listeners' pleasure, uh, please explain the precise legal definition of, of non-refoulement compared to ordinary deportation. Well, non-reformant in, in, in real simple terms is you should not, the state can't expel you uh, to an area uh, or a territory where your core human rights are to be free from things such as torture, uh, cruel or human or degrading treatment, uh, or the uh, deprivation of life. Um, uh, would occur to you in that country. If there's a, a chance of that happening, a real chance or risk of that happening, then the state is prohibited from uh, uh, removing you to a territory. Would you have already had to make a, a refugee claim or an asylum claim in order to invoke that legal principle? Or or no, would it apply to no, any person no, any time who's... Protection. So anybody who's threatened with deportation anywhere in the world, notwithstanding... A potential refugee claim, the non-refoulement principle applies to them. Yes, it's a core norm of, of international human rights law beyond the refugee convention. It certainly features in the refugee convention, but uh, international human rights treaties uh, since then um, have or have been interpreted and now widely accepted to have a non-refoulement component to aspects of them. So all of these people that have been deported in recent years from various Western countries in principle should have non-refoulement protections applied to them, even if they're being sent back to countries where mass murder is common, where torture is common, where political imprisonment is common. Well, it depends on the individual facts. 
I mean, it, I wouldn't want to be seen as arguing that in every case where there's some degree of conflict or human rights abuse that no one could ever be deported back there. It's something that I don't think is at certain thresholds of conflict, yes, um, but it's not possible to give an answer in the abstract, Scott. Um, it depends where we're talking about the circumstances that exist at the time when we're talking about in the circumstances of the individual, but as a matter of abstract uh, legal principle, yes, the, the right to be uh, not to be refooled is, an, is one that's absolutely enjoyed by uh, people. But tragically, one that's often violated, I think we can often say. Often honored in the breach, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, right, right. So um, just back to the... Um, Back to the Taitioa case at hand. So it's it's kind of run now a, a seven eight year trajectory, yeah. starting with um, your tribunal and then working its way all the way up to the UN Human Rights Committee in uh, Geneva and or New York, wherever the decision was yep. made. Um, and now he is still in Kiribati, I believe. Um, yeah, so I believe. Yeah, not able to return to New Zealand, unfortunately, in his particular case. And, you know, the reason I mention that is because so often, you know, now I'm speaking from the angle of a of an international human rights advocate um, and strategist and tactician, etc., in terms of trying to expand, uh, you know, the protections given by international human rights law, something I've been doing, you know, forever since I started working. And, and this case is just reminiscent of so many others at um, in, in all sorts of different fields of human rights law where, you know, the premier case, the kind of vanguard case, seems, you know, relatively solid and good from a from an activist perspective at the beginning. Um, but at the end, you know, one could argue that this case and some of the, the early cases at the for instance, Constitutional Court of South Africa and a whole range of other pl- places where there were expectations that, you know, the type of decisions that could be made were, you know, very different from what ended up actually being made. Um, yeah. That shows that it's so important. You know, obviously this is one person and his lawyer who brought the case forward at a certain time. And I don't know if that was done in any sort of strategic way with um, larger you know, activists, environmental NGOs, etc. Um, but basically, from my reading of it, in this area and in so many others, you know, not it was not the ideal case that was brought forward first. You know, because one could imagine the factual background of a climate change case that would be far more amenable to getting a far more yeah. protective judgment than was possible in this particular case because of the unique characteristics of that particular complainant. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean... So how far... Like, let's imagine you got the ideal case. You know, let's imagine you got a case of a, of a person that was absolutely legally protected in New Zealand as a, as a lawful resident under... New Zealand immigration law and the piece of land that they used to live on in Tuvalu was no longer there because sea levels had gobbled it up and they had no money and they had no, you know, you know, all of the factual 
elements were in place for a very crystal clear sort of judgment could could the current law enable decision makers in your particular jurisdiction to go quite a bit further or do we really start to have to think about changes to law both in New Zealand and and globally in order to provide more protection to people who attempt to stay in safe third countries when they're reluctant to return to their own countries Look, my personal feeling is that we need a full-spectrum response to a full-spectrum problem. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's difficult to conceive any area of individual, communal, societal life that's not already or not going to be impacted by climate change. You know, it transcends policy domains everywhere and law is or has a role to play litigation i think has a role to play legislation and regulation as legal devices have a role to play uh all of it um is important um and think just concentrating on one over the other would be a mistake. But all, I think, are important and necessary. Uh, to come back to your question, um, yes, of course, in, in the abstract sense, if the facts supported it, I think in New Zealand we do have a, a framework. I think these cases have begun to map out a framework within which we could potentially make positive decisions, but the facts and evidence have to be there. Um, I think for anybody around the world listening to the podcast, uh, lawyers, uh, activists, I think you need to think carefully about your case uh, selection. Um, the thing about running strategic litigation is choose the best case, maximize your outcome. Right, absolutely. Um, and in this case, perhaps not the best on the facts, but it was one of a number of cases brought by the lawyer. Um, and so I think it's got to be seen as part of part of part of a whole. Um, so um, yeah, look, I, I think we do in New Zealand at least have the beginning of a of a, of a framework around which we could make uh, a positive intervention if the right case came before us. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me to recite what the facts are, but um, yes, I think we do have a sufficient uh, framework through case law to begin to um, respond positively. And who knows when that time will come? Uh, I don't know when that will be. I don't know where the case will be. I don't know when the case will be. But I think we have at least begun to map out how existing norms, standards um, that we have as as decision-making tools uh, can be ones which could at least in principle ones um, applied uh, to facts in a way which leads to a positive outcome for the claimant. 
Do you think it's possible for that? Do you think it will happen in countries across the world? The the relatively you know few countries in the world that actually actively resettle internationally recognized refugees that there will eventually be a classification for climate displaced persons and similar to the way for instance um just thinking off the top of my head australia agreed to increase their their intake by twenty five thousand of syrian refugees for instance you know a very clear categorization of people they would accept do you see the day when that happens with climate change refugees I'd like to say yes, um, and there are, at least in the Pacific where we live, indications that governments are thinking about that, but it's more at a bilateral uh, level rather than as an organised um, element of a global regime, like we have refugee resettlement. Mm-hmm. You know, I think states have yet to um, make that leap from accepting the need to resettle people who can't go home for conflict-related reasons uh, to um, that uh, similar policy position in relation to people whose lives and livelihoods are compromised because of the impacts of disasters and climate change. I don't think we're, we're at that space. Uh, yet or anywhere near it. But we do see in the Pacific expressions um, by governments of a willingness to at least think about it. Nothing's come to fruition as yet. I mean, mm-hmm. the government, I think, it took, when it first was elected a couple of years ago, announced a policy. Um, Fiji has expressed a willingness to, um, you know, help uh, brothers and sisters from Kiribati should it come to it. Mm-hmm. So there is a willingness, I think, at least... Uh, by some governments in our neck of the woods to begin to think about uh, that, but not in the way in which you're suggesting, not as part of a formal resettlement um, architecture operating at a global level. I think we're a little bit away from that yet. Does um, I know that New Zealand traditionally has a, a policy of um, like a lottery system that allows a certain number of Tuvaluans and a certain number of Ikiribas and a certain number of Tokelauans and Samoans and Tongans to come in and settle permanently in New Zealand. Do you still have that policy in place? Yes, they're in place, yep. yep. And so that's now just done on a country basis, not done on a personal circumstances basis, right? Yeah, there's a, a set number of people from um, certain specified countries um, are able to come in either on, on a temporary basis to work or as a permanent basis um, uh, as residents. Um, and those, those schemes are still um, running. Uh, it's difficult for me to imagine a time when they when they won't be. They may tinker around with aspects of them, but as, as ideas, uh, New Zealand very much sees itself as a Pacific nation. Uh, there are brothers and sisters. Uh, and so I can't imagine we wouldn't have policies of that nature uh, going forward. Well, you have the largest Pacific population living in New Zealand already. In Auckland, yeah. Um, Auckland has... Asian city in the world, yeah. Absolutely. Right, right, which I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize the extent to which how many Tongans and Samoans and 
E. Kiribati and Tuvaluans and everyone else from the Pacific actually live already in yeah. uh, parts of Auckland, you know, and in the yeah. country generally. So it really is a Pacific country, so much more than Australia is. <laughs> and and it's perceived that way as well. You know, I mean, you're immediately looked at differently in the Pacific if you say you're Australian compared to saying you're a New right. Zealander. You know, it's quite quite phenomenal how much that's kind of sunk into the mind frame of of people across the entire region, you know? So, um, the Pacific nation, no doubt about it. Right. Right. And, you know, back to that issue of, you know, other countries helping others out, there's a long tradition in the Pacific of, uh, of allowing, um, and even facilitating the settlement of people from country X into country Y, um, out of a sense of, uh, just general solidarity, you know? So you have all the Tuvaluans that have settled in Kiowa, island in fiji for instance and there's a whole range of other possibilities and even years ago um you know kind of at the beginning when climate displacement was becoming an issue um there were you know statements made globally for instance by the government of indonesia i think it was just an off-the-cuff government but they uh, uh, comment but they were saying that you know we've got lots of extra islands we'll give an island to countries that need an island and and things like that you know you've heard a lot of those types of you know, goodwill sure. gestures put out into the media sphere, but we're still, you know, light years away from really finding a way to grapple structurally with the with a problem that's going to affect, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, as we always say, as complex and horrible as the situation is that faces the small island nations, I mean, two podcasts ago, three podcasts ago, the whole session was on on the threats facing the Marshall Islands. Um, you know, it's it's stratospheric in, in its seriousness and it's, you know, existential um, at its core. Um, but when you look at it purely in terms of the number of people affected, it's millions, but it's a small number of millions. So meaning the problem can be solved more easily than for hundreds of millions of people who are living in other countries across the world, you know. And there is that underlying sense of Pacific solidarity. Um, there is the very prominent an important role played by New Zealand. Um, and there is still a lot of land available in the Pacific where people could safely live on too, which is something that people often don't realize. There's a lot of mountainous countries still in the Pacific who won't face the yeah, type of problems I mean, yeah, that the I mean, atoll think, nations face. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends where we're talking about. I mean, certainly um, Fiji, PNG, you know, very prominent highlands. New Caledonia. A lot less. Um, you know, land is a, an issue in the Pacific, as you know. Um, complex um, land ownership uh, uh, issues um, when we're talking about people moving from customarily held land uh, to elsewhere. You bet. Countries, not very much land is held publicly. Um, but these are issues which um, you know I think must be seen within the broader um, um, uh, context of Pacific solidarity. I mean, the Pacific people are survivors; they're dealt with disasters for millennia. Uh, Absolutely, and they have mechanisms, uh, traditions, uh, and knowledge which must be part of the solution. I've got no doubt that as we get more 
uh, into a climate effect century that we will find um, innovative solutions for them um, that are, reflect and anchor a Pacific identity and a Pacific sense of, uh, of, of, of commonality and solidarity. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, um, you know, your cases, of course, are as, as significant as they are, not the only ones globally that have right. uh, been considered by courtrooms and judges and tribunal members, etc., on the climate change front. And um, I guess of all the cases in the world, the, probably the one that m- more people know more about is the famous... Uh, I'll pronounce it in Dutch, Urgenda case in uh, uh, Holland. Yeah. Um, Urgenda, as you would say in English, I guess. Urgent agenda, the combination yeah. of those two words, yeah. which was initially filed in successfully in The Hague in 2016, and it's been recently reaffirmed by the Supreme Court of the Netherlands uh, this year. Um, are, you, are you quite familiar with that case? You must be. Not so familiar with it. I know what it basically... Um did but i'm not you know i'm not entirely familiar with it i have to say well it's a it's hundreds of pages long the the various decisions so i don't blame you um but you know unlike other countries um you know holland publishes its uh, supreme court decisions in english as well as dutch not bad you know yeah, Pretty extraordinary because so many countries um, obviously don't do that. But, you know, the essence for listeners that don't know about it, the essence of that case is essentially that uh, for the first time anywhere in the world, uh, a, a court decided that uh, the national government of an independent sovereign country, in this case Holland, Netherlands, um, had to keep its emissions below a certain amount in order to comply with its own um, responsibilities regarding CO2 emissions. And... That was successful in 2016. It was subsequently appealed by various governments and um, ultimately upheld in 2020, um, earlier this year, the, or la- late last year, I can't recall, but recently, um, Supreme Court said, so sorry, government of Holland, you have to comply and you, have to le- you are now legally obliged to reduce CO2 emissions below a certain level. So that's obviously something that's inspiring all sorts of thinkers and movements across the world to try to do similar things in their own countries. Cause you know, unless we have that degree of force essentially um, other than tragic things like COVID-19, nothing else seems to be able to stop CO2 emissions. Um, as we all know, CO2 emissions have gone up every single year since the Paris climate accords of 2015. So that incredible global treaty so far has not really worked. COVID-19 has helped a bit. CO2 emissions have actually stabilized for the first time in centuries. Um, but they'll go straight back up again once things oh, no doubt. remedy themselves here. I don't think that people are going to change to the degree that people were hoping they would. And all those you know, ports around the world where you can suddenly see dolphins again you'll no longer be able to see dolphins again all too soon. You'll no longer be able to see to the bottom of Venice's canals like you can now for the first time in centuries. Uh, you know, um, wild boars will no longer, you know, inhabit villages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so all of those things will probably, you know, be reversed. But, you know, courtrooms 
remain one of the last bastions of of uh, independent support that can be used by people seeking climate justice around the world. And, you know, we're talking now about in one way or another, every single human being really is going to be and already is being affected by um, the effects of climate change and litigating and even more so legislating um, to adequately address this, you know, remains an open-ended quest that's going to go on for decades and decades, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think one of the interesting things about the last, uh, you know, five to ten years is just the degree to which law is actually now being used uh, as a means of addressing policy deficits at the global level or in the Dutch case at the national level. One can see you know, there's a complete mismatch between sort of the global need to urgently address uh, carbon emissions and the effects of climate change um, and what states have shown themselves um, willing to commit to and do. There is this cavernous gap that's increasingly being brought to our attention by more robust uh, science and evidence. And so, you know, not surprising in that sense that we're, I think we see law being used as a tool to address this policy deficit. And really that's what we're uh, seeing here with the Uganda case, uh, which I'll say in English, I can't, don't have your proficiency. Well in done, well done. Dutch. Uh, and that's, that's what we're seeing. Um and I think there's other cases where NGOs and concerned uh, uh, citizen groups are organising uh, with legal professionals to bring this matter matters before the court. Um, because you know, once you file something, you're forcing um, the state to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Even right. if they're going to try to strike you out, they've got to explain why. And well, so it's, a, it's yeah. a really interesting development that we see cases like this, um, you know, from around the world uh, where um, groups are using um, climate change uh as a context within which to bring uh, legal action mm-hmm. against various um, decisions or lack of decisions or lack of uh, action by the government. Um, and it's, I think, the beginning of a legal journey. Uh, I think looking forward, we can expect and should expect to see more. Yeah, and surprisingly for a lot of people, you know, there's already been uh, – a very large number of cases adjudicated by courts around the world. I think at latest count, it's around 1,600 different cases have made it before judges in different tribunals across the world. The vast majority of those, of course, are in uh, litigation land, um, the United States of America. Yeah, I think it's about 1,300 of the 1,600. Um, but there's a solid 300 from uh, other countries, which 
you know, very often have um, made some remarkably positive findings. I mean, we should do a little shout out to the courts of um, Pakistan, for instance, because two of the leading cases in the world, the Ali case of 2016 and the Ligari case of 2018, have made, you know, really positive contributions to the climate jurisprudence uh, in the world. And there's other really amazing cases from the United Kingdom, there's a pending case now on the Torres Strait Islands um, of Australia, of course. Um, there's a whole range of others from uh, Germany and Austria, Switzerland, um, e- the United States. Um, the famous uh, Juliana case, which was brought by on behalf of a whole range of school children, um, yep. which unfortunately was thrown out um, not long ago um, by the increasingly conservative judicial structures in that country. Um, but nonetheless, more and more people are doing it, and more and more people are trying to use the courts to draw attention to, you know, what really needs to be done. Because, you know, ultimately, with this issue, it's so overarching, it's so overwhelming, um, so ubiquitous, that it all really, in the end, boils down to power. And, you know, the ones that have power, the fossil fuel industry and their cronies within the political structures that support them, um, obviously don't want to stop burning fossil fuels and they, they want to keep going. And a lot of ordinary people, they, they will support action on climate change, but when you say to them, that probably means you have to have fewer children and eat less meat and drive your car less, um, they're a lot less willing to play ball, you know. And that's really, you know, the huge challenge that this whole issue presents all of us, that our entire economic system is completely interwoven with an industrial structure that's reliant upon burning things that make the world hotter. It's, you can boil it down to that phrase. And moving to a truly sustainable future, which is truly renewable in all of its attributes and aspects without any more CO2 emissions, is a very, very heavy task and one that uh, we hope will be achieved, but we don't know when that'll be achieved. But, um, Bruce, thank you so much for today's conversation. Anything else you want to add before we uh, call it quits? No, no, just once again, thank you for having me. It's great to be part of the podcast. And, you know, I think we all await with great interest what further developments occur uh, in case law around the world. I think you're absolutely right to point out the great contributions that judiciaries and judicial structures in the global south have. I think it's a mistake uh, to see this as something which is the uh, purview of uh, judicial systems in the global north. Um, and really the fact that um, legal systems elsewhere are being engaged and being engaged with positively um, speaks volumes for the capacity within those legal systems uh, to contribute to the progressive understanding of law in, in a way which you know reduces all the deficit between policy need and uh, policy output to date at the global level. So, no, thank you very much. It's a very uh, interesting uh, time to be involved in cases of this nature. Well, absolutely. Well, my pleasure. And it just reminds me of another thing to say. You know, the the real thing from my personal 
perspective that's missing in the world of climate jurisprudence, of course, at the national level is the the whole question of housing, land, and property rights as it relates yes. to people who are displaced by climate change. And, you know, we work on that issue with my other organization, Displacement Solutions, all the time, um, both from yeah. a preventative angle and a, and a, in quotes, curative angle re- regarding land solutions for people that are displaced from land. Um, but there isn't a huge amount of case law out there right now that um, has addressed that specific issue. Like, what is the no, precise obligation? The other- uh-huh. Yeah, and and also, you know, cultural rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's whether people are moving internally or cross border. Often they're moving from a place where they have a visceral um, connection to land, which has been part of their identity since time memorial, and so there's this deep loss of connection, um, and. That is something to which human rights law speaks, but only I, I think there's a lot of room to think there. What does it actually mean? What does what does what cultural rights exist, and how do they how can that um, be developed and applied in this context? Because uh, if people do have to move, um, this can, I mean, certainly in the Pacific, and I guess elsewhere as well, have a dramatic impact upon their enjoyment of of their culture. Uh, and so that's something to which law can and, uh, and should speak. So I think that that's another area where I think uh, lawyers could very, uh, very much contribute um, to um, reducing policy uh, deficits, if you like. Oh, absolutely. And of course, New Zealand's one of the leading countries which has uh, a body of jurisprudence giving legal identity to natural objects. Which is a whole other issue, but incredibly yeah. interesting. I mean, there's the uh, the river case and the mountain case, yeah. both, I think, in New Zealand, where um, a river was given a legal identity and then a, a court-appointed custodian was put in place to ensure its protection. And I think the same with a, with a mountain that had spiritual significance to some of the indigenous groups. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know... You, you, there's a lot of areas in which I think New Zealand has been required to think very carefully in New Zealand legal system is required very carefully about how it uh, treats uh, Tonga treasures of, of the Māori population and how that uh, can be accommodated uh, within legal structures. And there's lessons to be learned there. Well, particularly so, by the country I'm broadcasting from. <laughs> great, great to uh, talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, keep up the great work, and hopefully we'll see some more significant decisions by you down the road on this topic. We know. And until the next time, have a great time in Aotearoa. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So that was episode 25, everyone, uh, with Bruce Burson, who's the manager of Refugee and Protection streams at the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal. Thank you so much, Bruce, for that amazing conversation. And we look forward to seeing you all again real soon with episode 26. Until then, see you soon. Bye.